Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. It's the end of the year when we enjoy time with those we care about, sharing both presence and presence. I appreciate you spending some of that time with me. As a thank you, I offer up this week's and next week's episode. They're on ADHD and giftedness, because nothing says you care like a bad pun. Happy holidays, y'all. Want to get me something for Christmas? How about the same thing I asked for for Hanukkah? A five-star rating and review in iTunes. They help others find the show and make a great stocking stuffer. And yes, we're a mixed-faith family, so I celebrate both Christmas and Hanukkah. This is episode 51. Today, we're talking to Aurora Remember Holtzman. Aurora is a school psychologist host of the Embracing Intensity podcast, and a twice-exceptional mother of a twice-exceptional son. They both have ADHD and giftedness. In today's episode, we're talking just that, ADHD and giftedness, through the lens of someone who's living it. We explore growing up gifted with ADHD, impulsiveness versus compulsiveness, the value of teachers who get your kid, and the importance of learning to self-regulate as a parent. You can learn more about Aurora and find her podcast at auroraremember.com. All right, let's get rolling. We're of the chaotic gifted variety rather than the uh, the more ordered type. <laughs> My grandma, who's 92, she just moved into a retirement community last year nearby us and it cracks me up because even now she's like gets mad at herself for forgetting things but yet she can she can ask at our uh uu church the minister like these really poignant questions after the sermon i'm like you were even following this (laughs) and she's 92 um and she's dealing with boredom you know in that setting it's a whole different issue that's that could be a whole other discussion in retirement um elders my parents both graduated high school early, but then um, there was a lot of chaos. Let's see, my mom got her doctorate and um, three masters, I think. Wow. <laughs> and my dad, I think, was in his doctoral program by like 20 or 21 because he got through high school and college super early. But he never really thought of himself as smart <laughs> because he compared himself to these other, you know, vision of what what smartness looked like and he didn't think of himself that way even though he got through both high school and undergrad in like significantly less time than average he still didn't think of himself as all that smart growing up because he was always comparing himself to the people who had it together you know yeah and that's been my experience too growing up I was almost kicked out of the gifted program because I was not performing and I was actually in that program longer than most of the people who were in it with me because I was identified in a fifth grade. And a lot of these people in the, in my high school program were there because they were high achievers. Mm -hmm. 
they almost kicked me out because I wasn't a higher achiever. And that I think that's where my love of twice exceptionality, gifted plus some sort of disability, ADHD, whatever learning disability comes from is because those to me, the high achievers are going to achieve regardless of what supports they have in place because they're motivated and they, they have the skills and the executive functioning to succeed. But those gifted kids who aren't high achievers, they're the ones who need the support. In school settings even, and, and both as a child growing up, as a parent, and as an educator, I still feel that is a huge missing piece because really the gifted program is great but for those kids that are struggling with executive functioning or struggling with the social interactions required to get through the system, those are the ones who need the help. Yeah. I want to um, poke around in executive functioning just for a minute in case mm-hmm. we have any new listeners who are like, what is that? Mm-hmm. So executive functioning is, takes place in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And it's really just organization and time awareness and emotional regulation and getting yourself to do the thing that you need to do in a way that is as efficient as possible or getting yourself to stop doing the thing you shouldn't be doing so that you can then go and do the thing that you need to do. That's basically executive functioning in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ex- dig too deep because that can be an entire episode or 12, um, but that's the gist of it. And so absolutely that's a thing that can be a challenge. If you've got those skills, then you're going to be a high achiever. But if you don't have those skills and you're gifted, that's a recipe for struggle and frustration. One of our special ed teachers has this great analogy for executive functioning. It's like the executive assistant of our brain. Um, I always thought that was a nice visual for people who, who don't quite get what executive functioning is. Yeah, because you're a school psychologist, right? Yes, yeah. So you're coming at, you're coming at ADHD and giftedness from a number of different angles, both as a mm-hmm. parent and as a school psychologist. Yes. I guess, what was it like growing up in a, in a household that sounds like it's full of gifted people? If your mom and dad are both finishing school in a half a minute, but then struggling with the ADHD side of things, it sounds like, at least to some degree. Well, it's the basic living stuff. That's the stuff, you know, really great at solving complicated problems, but not necessarily great at, um, you know, keeping the, the laundry and the dishes and the household finances and the like the basics of adulting <laughs> mm-hmm. because they're your brains up here in the the ether or whatever you want to call it and like getting back down to earth to to deal with the earthly matters is <laughs> is the challenge i think for all of us <laughs> yeah so um for me growing up you know on the one hand it would have been nice to have a little bit more of that structure in place to help myself with gaining those skills. But on the other hand, because both of my parents were that way, there was a foundation of acceptance and love. In some ways, I feel as an adult that that served me way better than just learning all these basic life skills. Because those I can start learning and teaching myself. I mean, yeah, I would have loved to have a little bit more of a foundation of like, here are some basic things you need to do <laughs> to, to be an adult. <laughs> I, I, I resolved that in my early years by marrying someone who had a stronger frontal lobe than I did and did most of that. So it wasn't until um, I was divorced and as a single parent that it really became an issue. Mm-hmm. And even then I still managed because that urgency 
drives you. And when something's important, you're more likely to follow through on it and, you know, without the urgency. So yeah, I miss appointments and, you know, things that seem inconsequential, but when it comes down to the important stuff, I remember enough to, to keep my kid alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and thriving in some ways. Um, but there was that additional challenge because my kid was super intense. And so like from birth, he couldn't focus. Like his, the first time he nursed, we so we made a little like, and he popped off and looked around. The day one, the very first time, like he was not even a day old and he's looking around. I couldn't even read a book because if I turned the page, he would pop off and look around. I couldn't nurse in public because he was just so interested in everything that was going on around him. But he was also colicky. So he cried all the time. My sister didn't even believe in colic until she, she um, spent time with him and she worked with babies for a living. And my belief in hindsight is that his brain was so far ahead of what his body could do that it was frustrating to him and he experienced things intensely so you know discomfort would be pain from a physical perspective been an issue for me is chronic pain and things being more intense physically um and i learned to tune them out as a kid mm -hmm. for him that intensity of like just being intensely curious of everything around him and then not being able to physically do what he wants to do in his brain was really a challenge because he's gifted as well i'm assuming mm -hmm. yeah and so your your guess is that his brain was sort of gifted even when he was three months old and it was maybe developing it to the point of like six months old or something and he wanted to do stuff his body physically was un incapable of doing that's my theory from observing how he transitioned as he started to be able to communicate what he wanted. It definitely helped. Um, you know, it was, he was still intense, but the colic part wasn't as bad once he could start communicating what it was going on in his head. How old is your son now? 10. Okay. 10. All right. So just yeah. so we have a frame for where things are. How is that intensity playing out now? What does that look like? Well, so he just was officially diagnosed last year with ADHD, mm -hmm. and um, he started on medication in the spring, right around his 10th birthday in April. And it's funny because he hadn't missed it until about a month ago was the first time he missed it. And he came home with a uh, Sharpie all over his fingernails. <laughs> and, and then uh, last week at church, he, um, I had forgotten, and I didn't even think about it, but he showed up he had drawn on his face. <laughs> I was like, dude, what's going on here? And then as we were sitting at lunch, I go, did you take your meds this morning? <laughs> and he said, no, he hadn't. And so the, the two times he didn't have it, he drew all over himself. Wow. Um, and then it, he had us twice this past week. So we got to start being more on top of it. We've been kind of less on top of it recently. So he missed it at his dad's this week and he showed up at school and he was telling me, oh, I'm I was all over the place. I was running around like a crazy person. And I said, wait, wait down. Before you were on the medication, you were not running around like a crazy person at school. Right. <laughs> so, so you can't blame no meds for running around like a crazy person. That's a, that's a different that's thing. That's a choice, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So now we have to really look at the meds in terms of uh, making sure that we're consistent about it because 
it's such a fine line. I really think the drawing on himself really was just an impulsive thing he did mm -hmm. because the second time he didn't even remember he hadn't taken his meds. It was after the fact that I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I have a couple of questions or a couple of thoughts, I guess. One is it sounds like you might need to, and you probably already have talked to him about how when you haven't taken your meds, that's not an excuse for poor mm -hmm. behavior, which is yes. sounds like a little bit of what was happening with the running around. Yes. Yeah, but, um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I try to go, I try to look at the like off kilter reason for stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, especially drawing on yourself, I'm wondering how much of that is sensory as opposed to impulsivity. Yeah, it's true. And I don't, but, and drawing on himself wasn't something he did frequently before that. So it was just, it was odd because it wasn't a, a conscious thing because he hadn't even remembered mm -hmm. the second time around that he hadn't taken his meds. But, um, but yeah, it is funny. I, that it could be uh, something sensory. That's where my brain goes. I'm like, the obvious thing is impulsivity, but what if it's something else? <laughs> yeah. So, well, and that's a really good point too, because, um, and this is something that I've been the last few years educating myself on something. What if it's something other than impulsivity? Mm -hmm. And for me, that is uh, compulsivity. So Tourette's is something I think gets underdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that because I have a, a family member who got diagnosed a couple years ago and, um, the behaviors really look like impulsive behaviors and people thought he was ADHD up until he was um, fifth going on to sixth grade. He would describe his behaviors that he would actually think it through and he would think what's the worst thing I can do in this situation. He would, he would feel compelled to do it and he would think in his head, should I do it? No, I shouldn't do it. Should I do it? No, I shouldn't do it. Should I do it? No, I shouldn't do it. Wow. And then he would feel like he had to do it. And it's really, it's, it's things like, you know, grabbing stuff from his sister. He has a compulsion to do that. I saw another kid years ago who had to pull on the tie of our principal. Every time he saw him, he'd pull his tie. It's like weird, complicated behaviors that you're like, that's kind of weird, but it's, it's like this, it's a compulsion. And so it's brought my own awareness as I've worked with kids in the school setting. And it's an, it's an awkward thing to bring up. Like, do you think he might have Tourette's? <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like these idiosyncratic behaviors that seem impulsive on the surface. But if you dig deeper and ask them more questions, you discover they were actually feeling a compulsion to do it rather than an impulse. And it's such a fine line. That brings me to actually something that happened yesterday with my, with my boys and my wife. In the car driving home, one of them, or maybe both of them, I don't, I don't remember, um, we're making a weird, like a weird, annoying noise. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, cut it out. And then they make the noise again. Then it's pretty much done. Mm -hmm. I usually let that go. Mm -hmm. My wife mentioned it to them. Like, well, they were saying something about how they were good kids. And she was like, yeah, you're a good kid. Except that we asked you to stop making that annoying noise. And you had to make it one more time. Mm -hmm. And then you stopped. I didn't realize she was seeing it as defiance. Uh -huh. because I see it as compulsion. Uh, yeah. And and so I'm just wondering what you think about that. I see it as like, I'm in the flow of doing this behavior and uh -huh. then I'm asked to not do the behavior anymore, but that compulsion is still there. So I have to like, to process out of the compulsion, I have to do that thing one more time or maybe two more times and then I can get out of it and be done. Yeah, totally. I was just, that reminds me of a time we were in the car driving grandma to back to her house her to her home and she's in the front seat and they're all in the back and my son needed to pee and mm -hmm. so he kept making a 
a water noise. And it was driving my son nuts. And he was like, you know, it was with the maddest I think my grandma had gotten to, at them in the car. <laughs> because, because like, you know, the ones like making these water, water noises and my son's like freaking out because he needs to pee. And, and, you know, grandma yells and he's like, you could see him hold back, hold back, hold back. And then just one last time. and it was like it was just so funny because i could see him try so hard to hold it back and he just couldn't and and again it was that what he he got that last one out of his system and then he stopped but but you could see him physically like trying to keep himself from doing it yeah um and i think when you when you understand the difference between the compulsion and 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 impulse control it's helpful in talking to him because the dynamic with a sister can be really difficult because she'll purposefully do or like he'll grab something out of her hand and if she leaves it he'll get tired and drop it and that's it you know but she she doesn't so she chases after him and he you know he's running around and uh, with this thing and then it becomes this big thing but it's hard for people to see those behaviors and see them as a tick they don't understand that's a tick it, it is for him it is a compulsion it's a tick if you just let it go he actually will stop and move on to something else but if you keep pushing then he's just he can't like i don't know it's hard it's hard as a parent i'm glad i'm kind of glad not to have siblings in the house because um i i see it, it, it how challenging it is when you have two intense kids in the same house. Just because I lost track of things. Who was in the back seat with the, the water noises? Oh, it was my, it was, so it was his cousin, you know, okay. my son. Yeah. Your son and your, and, and his cousin. Awesome. Going back to that example of his cousin taking a toy from his sister. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to that, that part, I often think about that in terms of dopamine. So mm-hmm. not, not as a tick, which I'm not saying it doesn't mean it's not a tick, but but I often look at that behavior as like the ADHD brain, or in this uh-huh. case, I guess the Tourette's brain being like, Hey, is there dopamine in this toy? If I take it, like, will my sister give me some dopamine. Oh, yeah. And so if yeah. you chase after them, then there's dopamine. But if you don't, there's no dopamine. So now I'm not interested in this toy anymore. Cause I didn't get the neurochemical that I didn't know I needed. Yeah, no, that makes sense too. Well, what's fascinating too is, is looking at the, um, assessment from an assessment perspective because I got I got to test to experiment when I was using the the new iPad version of this test that I'd given before but I needed to practice on this new format mm-hmm. and then I was also practicing some new executive functioning tests his executive functioning skills are actually really good and so that's another piece that you know when he was in elementary school they thought it was possibly ADHD but but looking at it from an um an assessment perspective too. He's got solid executive functioning skills and some kids with ADD actually do well on those tests because, because of the novelty. Right. And so just because they do well on those things doesn't make them not ADD. But in his case, like he did really well on the executive functioning parts of the test, which I just thought was fascinating because I had tested a kid of a similar age right around the same time on those same executive functioning tests. And you could definitely see the difference my head is going to the, the assessment side of, of your school psychologist background. Mm-hmm. I would assume, and, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong. I'm completely comfortable being wrong. But I would assume that sort of going through the testing to the amount that you must gives you a different perspective on executive function 
just in day-to-day life and as you walk through stuff because I would imagine the assessment side sometimes creeps out mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what's that like? You know, that was an interesting example for me is looking at that, like seeing the difference between a kid that looks impulsive on the surface, but then you really dig deep and they've got solid foundation skills in executive functioning and and in his school life too. Like he's way better able to keep track of his assignments and, you know, do just like he's got these systems that he just kind of naturally instinctively has. And And this is all your nephew who has Tourette's? Am I? Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. making sure I'm keeping up. You know, um, because as opposed to your son who has ADHD. Yes, exactly. Who's who's got the definite holes and organization. And it really starts to come up, I think, fourth, fifth grade is when you really start to see those executive functioning skills in school Mm -hmm. as an issue because the requirement on your executive functioning becomes so high. That's why it took till fourth grade to really identify my son, because he even now can kind of hold it together when he's in a highly motivating environment. And we've been extremely fortunate in his teachers, extremely. Like I'm constantly grateful for how well he does in school because he has teachers who get him and that is rare. And the fact that he's had that almost every year, he's only really had one year where he didn't have a teacher that got him. He's in fifth grade. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that look like when the teacher gets him? What does that mean? Or what does it mean when they don't get him? Whichever one is where you want to start. Well, so here's here I'll, I'll, I'll that that's actually a good good example because um, when we were moving schools uh, to one that I had worked with for many years so I knew the teachers I knew the principal it's a great fit um, and his dad happened to move into that boundary so it was great I was talking about a teacher he didn't end up having but I said oh yeah I've heard you know really great things about her and he said well that's what you said about this year's teacher and I said well to be fair I he was first grade okay <laughs> So I said, to be fair, I don't think that she's a bad teacher. I just don't think she entirely gets you. And he said, yeah, she doesn't get me. She doesn't get my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, but she gets this kid. This kid was a kid who was in a special program for autism, but also happened to be gifted and had a paraeducator in the class and was treated as if he had you know, special needs in the classroom, which he did. Mm -hmm. And even my first grade son was able to observe, oh, she gets him because she treats him specially. She sees that he has special needs and she, she, you know, treats him that way. But in his case, he was just kind of, you know, given extra work in the back of the room and then treated like he was being naughty when he was, you know, bored. But that she doesn't get my feelings was, he was working with the counselor at the time and he was, doing a group or was supposed to do a group, but he, I was the only one who followed through on the signature because I knew the value of it, you know, <laughs> being in it, working in schools. So it was just the two of them and they got talking about, you know, feelings. And so he was able to start articulating things that he maybe couldn't earlier on. And uh, so moving through to his second grade teachers, they, when I first told them, I used the term excitable. <laughs> with them and they go oh that's okay we're excitable too (laughs) (laughs) and and, um they just you know they really got the areas that he became passionately interested in and it it definitely depends on the relationship he has with the teacher so that year the language arts teacher 
connected emotionally with him more than the other one. Um, they were both great, but he, he was really excited about writing and about creating stories and about all this creative stuff. And he was, you know, okay with the math and science stuff. But then the following year, he was really connected to the, uh, more to the math teacher. And so he was super into the math side of things and not as into the language arts part. So for him, his interest in a subject was partially dependent on how engaged he was with the teacher. I mean, that's for so many kids. ADHD or no ADHD, that yeah. could be a huge, play a huge role. When I taught, there was a year when I, uh, I had a girl who was so ADHD. Oh my God, was she ADHD. And I got like warnings, like she came in a sixth grade. So not, it's not like she's been in middle school. This is her first year in middle school. Mm-hmm. But the special education teacher was like, yeah, this girl, her parents are intense and like she's got ADHD and the parents have ADHD. And it was this like, this kid's going to be a horrible nightmare, right? Like that was, you got your work cut out for you. This is going to be rough. The girl just caught me at the right moment because I didn't typically disclose, but she's talking, she's doing something in class and we're all going through stuff. And she was trying to use ADHD as an excuse for something. I don't remember exactly what it was yet, but she was like, well, Mr. Mahan, I have ADHD. And I said, yeah, that's okay. So do I, but I still don't do that. And then I just kind of rolled on, right? <laughs> and she was like, and then her whole year changed. Mm-hmm. And she was like, because it was like the first week of school when this happened. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, Mr. Mahan's going to be awesome. And that class is going to be great because he has ADHD and he knows what it is and he gets me and da 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 And about midway through the year, I remember that special education teacher in a team meeting. Mm-hmm. And saying that this girl thinks she's going to have an easy time in your class because you told her you have ADHD. It was one of those like Mm -hmm. trying to make me the bad guy, like almost like I had done the wrong thing, right? (laughs) I remember sitting there and being like, except that she actually, like it's been long enough. She actually is having a great year in my class. For no other reason than my ADHD won for 30 seconds and I told her that I have it. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, awesome. Nothing else was different. I didn't play favorites. I didn't like, I mean, I followed the 504, but beyond that, mm-hmm. I didn't do anything over the top special, except yeah. that this girl was like, we're connected. And any kid that says, does that with me, I would be like, okay, like yeah. we're buds. That's cool. But you're still doing your homework. <laughs> like, yeah. And so it was totally the personality thing that, that hooked her and helped her have a better year. So I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, in this year, you know, it's three, three teachers and they're all, because they're breaking it up by subject more, they can be more into their subject. So like his math teacher is 26, I think, and he's been doing it for four years. So he's been a math teacher for gifted kids since he was like 22. I mean, (laughs) he's got that, that geeky, like intense math focus that really drives him. And (laughs) in my head, he has messy hair. Super. I'm, I'm thinking. He's, yeah. It's also red for some reason. I don't know why that is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's brown, but I'm trying to think if it's messy. <laughs> yeah, but you know, so he's got that enthusiasm and he thought he didn't like science, mm-hmm. which I thought was really bizarre because he's got such a science brain. Like he, he should love science. And I think it's just because of the way science was taught last year was very, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but for whatever reason, the way science was taught last year, he just didn't think he liked it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then this year he's got a teacher who she's, um, she's been there way longer than I went before I was there. She had worked, I think it was a robotics or something or Lego, some, some sort of camp years ago. And, uh, there was a, a time when he wanted to do something that was above what was expected for his age. And somebody, one of the camp counselors was like, oh no, no, he can't do that. And he remembered this teacher standing up and saying, oh no, he can do that. Like he, he's got the skills. Like, so he, he knew that she had recognized in him this ability way before she was even his science teacher. And so that connection again, you know, it's, it sticks. And when you have somebody who advocates for you or makes a connection early on, you remember that. And that's, that's so key for, for teachers and parents to see and to hear like, Oftentimes with ADHD kids, with gifted kids, if you just point towards what they can do as opposed to pointing towards what they can't do, mm-hmm. even if it's something you don't think they can do, but you phrase it in a way that you're like, nah, they can figure that out. I mean, they'll go, they go so far for you and they'll surprise you with what they can actually pull off. Mm-hmm. So what, what's been challenging with a gifted and ADHD kid and being a gifted and an ADHD mom? And Well, for, you know, as I mentioned, the intensity when he was little and, and as a, especially dealing with it as a single parent, that was definitely <laughs> intense, um, you know, meltdowns. It's, there's definitely a sensory component. So are you familiar with the Stuart Shanker's book, Self-Reg? No, I don't think I am. So he talks about the, the stress cycle and how, you know, when you have one stressor, you may react, but then when you have another stressor, you react twice as much. And then the next stressor, you react four times as much. So it's just this exponential reaction to stress. I think it kind of goes along with your wall of awful uh, analogy that you use. Yeah, it sounds Um, like it. From a parent perspective, where that came into play is sometimes we could go to a store and it wouldn't be a big issue. But then every now and then we would walk into a store and the first, like he just walks through the door and he'd melt down. I have to think that was a sensory thing, Mm -hmm. but that for whatever reason at that moment in time, he was dealing with more below the surface stressors than I realized because sometimes he could go into the store with no problem. And then other times he would melt down. Yep. So that would be an example. And then in school, of course, um, it was kindergarten that got me researching about giftedness and behavior issues and connecting with the term overexcitability, which is kind of what led me to my whole work body of work. And, uh, as he's been in school more, as he's, he's been, especially being in the school he's at now where he has a principal who really connects with him and, and he's been placed in classes with teachers that really get him. Does he get in trouble more often than your average kid? Probably, <laughs> but, um, but it's not hugely problematic. I'm sort of going back to that sensory stuff and the, and the meltdowns. Do you have any strategies that you can share with us? Well, see, this is a good question. And this is, this is coming from the parent perspective and, and sharing um, anybody who, who, who feels bad about their parenting. Because before I became a school psychologist, I worked with behavior disordered kids in a non-public school in California. Mm-hmm. And I was like a model teacher. People would have people observe me to see how I handled these challenging kids. And I had them in line. I had, you know, I had these, I was using lots of positive reinforcement. I was flattening my affect. So I was, you know, when, when they were off task, I was like not giving them that input. So I was calming myself down and not reacting um, when they're reacting. 
as a parent, all that crap goes out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really, really hard to not get yourself engaged when your kid is, is melting down. And so, I mean, I would say the best thing is learning your own self-regulation because that mirror, you know, the mirror neurons and how we react. And um, I can't say that I'm great at that even now. I mean, uh, especially after the early years of just screaming baby and not, you know, it's like it took me a while to even get to a point where I could keep myself calm (laughs) in reaction. And so, so for me, self-regulation is, is the biggest as a parent thing to work on, because if we can't keep ourselves calm when our kids are riling up, which is understandable, Mm -hmm. then it's hard to get them to use their self-regulation skills if we are having trouble with it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's, I often talk to parents about how if one person in a situation is dysregulated, it spreads like a virus. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier as a teacher to stay objective and to, to stay calm because they're not, they're not your kids. Right, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a different level of emotional investment. Yeah, and oh, that's an interesting point. I wonder if that's part of what helps me pull out is that teacher training and, and often being not, not emotionally invested that, I mean, I'm not going to say that I consistently or all the time am able to pull myself out of that dysregulation, but mm-hmm. like when my kid is dysregulated or my wife is or something, but I think I do it more often than your typical husband father, mm-hmm. probably by a factor of two or three, like a considerably more often, but still, I don't even know that I do it 50% of the time. I just do it more. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wonder if it was the teaching side, but being that anchor and being that leader in the regulation way, like I'm going to be regulated and try to have that spread like a virus. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a really useful tool. So thank you for sharing that because uh, I don't know that I've ever I've ever looked at it from the angle that you're looking at it from. Even though I probably advised it, you just put it in a way that's a little different. So thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I want to acknowledge the difficulty in it because you know oh, we yeah. all we have like extensive amounts of training and we can't even do it consistently. Right. <laughs> you sound like you do it more than I. <laughs> I'm getting there. But for me. I don't know how much as I've improved and how much he's improved. I mean, he's on, he's on medication now. He's once he was able to, to verbalize his feelings in a way where he can reflect um, Mm -hmm. when he's not engaged in that fight flight mode, where his frontal lobe shuts down, he's able to look back and reflect more. Mm -hmm. And so, so with that maturity, I think around eight for me was when he started to be able to reflect and also the empathy level with other kids um, started to be there more. And so even now he'll do things when his frontal lobe goes away and he's feeling like he has to do something a certain way. He'll, his empathy goes out the window in that moment. He is capable of the empathy when he's, you know, fully engaged. Awesome. So just being mindful of time and recognizing that we need to start bringing things in for a landing. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? I think for me, when we look at both ADHD and um, giftedness and twice exceptionality, however, any kind of neurodiversity, I think too often we're quick to identify the weaknesses, but sometimes those weaknesses are the flip side of a strength. For example, with the, um, in my family, that kind of chaotic, not being great at the day-to-day things, but we were 
really great at creative problem solving and connecting with other people and all of these things that we probably wouldn't have those strengths if we didn't have the weaknesses. They're, they're part of the same, two sides of the same coin. And so I think we're getting better as a whole looking at the strengths and saying, well, here's this, here's the weaknesses, here's the strengths. But what I think my, my takeaway that I want to leave with is that it's not just a list of strengths and weaknesses. They're two sides of the same coin. So if you didn't have those weaknesses, you likely wouldn't have those strengths. They're part of the same thing. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.